Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your ways. We ask this now through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Friends, listen now with open ears, if you would, to the book that we love from John 13. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed the disciples' feet and had put on his robe and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, You also ought to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A woman in New York City some years ago, frustrated at the state of her love life, posted an ad on Craigslist entitled, What Am I Doing Wrong? This is the posting that she wrote. 
Okay, I'm tired of beating around the bush. I'm a beautiful, in parentheses, spectacularly beautiful 25-year-old girl. I'm articulate and classy. I'm looking to get married to a guy who makes at least a half a million dollars a year. I know how that sounds, but keep in mind that a million dollars a year is middle class in New York City, so I don't think I'm overreaching at all. Are there any guys who make more than $500,000 a year on this board? Any wives? Could you send me some tips? I dated a businessman who makes around 200 to 250K, but that's where I seem to hit a roadblock. $250,000 a year won't get me to Central Park West. I know a woman in my yoga class who was married to an investment banker and lives in Tribeca, and she is not as pretty as I am, nor is she a great genius. So what is she doing right? How do I get to her level? Please hold your insults. I'm putting myself out there in an honest way. Most beautiful women are superficial. At least I'm being upfront about it. I wouldn't be searching for these kinds of guys if I wasn't able to match them in looks and culture and sophistication. There was a man who responded to her post. And he wrote this. I read your posting with great interest, and I've thought meaningfully about your dilemma. I offer the following analysis of your predicament. First, I'm not wasting your time. I qualify as a guy who fits your bill. That is, I make more than 500K a year. That said, here's how I see it. Your offer, from the perspective of a guy like me, is plain and simple a crappy business deal. Here's why. Cutting through all the BS, what you suggest is a simple trade. You bring your looks to the party, and I bring my money. Fine, simple. But here's the rub. Your looks will fade, and my money will likely continue into perpetuity. In fact, it is very likely that my income increases, but it is an absolute certainty that you won't be getting any more beautiful. So, in economic terms, you are a depreciating asset, and I am an earning asset. Not only are you a depreciating asset, your depreciation accelerates. Let me explain. You're 25 now, and will likely stay pretty hot for the next five years, but less so each year. Then, the fade begins in earnest. By 35, stick a fork in you. His words, not mine. I will add for my own welfare. So in Wall Street terms, he said, we will call you a trading position, not a buy and hold. Hence the rub, marriage. It doesn't make good sense to quote, buy you, which is what you're asking, so I'd rather lease. In case you think I'm being cruel, I would say the following. If my money were to go away, so would you. So when your beauty fades, I need an out. It's as simple as that. So a deal that makes sense is dating, not marriage. Separately, I was taught early in my career about efficient markets. So I wonder why a girl as, quote, articulate, classy, and spectacularly beautiful as you has been, been unable to find your sugar daddy. I found it hard to believe that if you are as gorgeous as you say, that the $500,000 hasn't found you, if not only for a tryout. By the way, you could always find a way to make your own money, and then we wouldn't need to have this difficult conversation. We tend, don't we, to treat each other in transactional fashion. Maybe not so baldly as that woman and man, 
But oftentimes, this is the way that we practice our relationships. This is true in Jesus' day. And in the Roman world, the world of the New Testament, people practiced their relationships along a system called reciprocity, where you gave gifts and did favors for people for whom it'd be socially advantageous for you to do so. People in your own family and people rungs up the social ladder from where you were. And it's not so different in our own day and age. And so, Jesus' teaching, love one another. And love one another as I've loved you, as Elizabeth unpacked last week. Love one another without condition or reserve. Love people who are less than you on the social ladder. Love people who fail you. Love people who betray you. That was a scandal in Jesus' world. And it is still a beautiful scandal in ours. Even if you're somebody for whom you're pretty skeptical of Christian faith, you likely, in the 21st century West, you likely, at least hypothetically, think it's a good idea that people ought to love each other and, and that people even ought to love their enemies and love people that are different from them and, and so on. What I want you to see is, if that's the case, you, you think that because of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' teaching on love, it turned the world upside down in the first century. And it still should. And so I want to simply invite us to reflect together on Jesus' teaching as he sits with his closest friends and his final hours around that table and to reflect on what it means for us here and now to love one another as Jesus loves us. I want to suggest in particular that that means that we love each other as Jesus loves us and we, we also love one another from the love that Jesus has for us. Now, Jesus, after finishing doing the work of a slave for his friends, sits back down to the table. We can presume to stunned silence on the part of his disciples. And then he says to them, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's a curious thing, because by this time, the Jewish people had had for a millennia the command in the Hebrew scriptures to love your neighbor as yourself. They already knew that one. But it was only with the arrival of Jesus, as he started to tell cryptic stories of your neighbor, including foreigners and strangers and enemies and wicked pagans, that that idea, love your neighbor, love each other, began to be revolutionary. What we see around that table is that Jesus himself is our signature picture of the kind of love that he calls his followers to practice. Elizabeth pointed out last week how what Jesus does around the table here as he lowers himself, serves people who would have been beneath him socially, and as we look at this story across the canvas of John's gospel, we also see serves people who fail him and someone who betrays him. This is a miniature picture of what Jesus is about to do as he is nailed up to a Roman cross. 
The language John uses about Jesus taking off or laying down his robe here in John 13, it's the, it's the same language, identical language that's used elsewhere in the Gospel of John to describe Jesus laying down his very life for the world. And so this is a miniature picture of Jesus' looming crucifixion. Here, and then especially at the cross, Jesus would love failures and enemies and betrayers. He would serve those who don't deserve it. He would lay aside his dignity and his rights to lower himself to serve the undeserving. This, Jesus shows us, is the depths of what love looks like. So Jesus says this is an example for us as his followers. That word is a word that was used in that world to describe a tracing that an artisan would do that somebody else could follow and fill in the details of. And that's what we spend our lives doing as Jesus followers. When we're united to Jesus' life, Jesus' life becomes the pattern for our own lives. As we make our way through the one another's that dot the New Testament, these are all simply different ways that we love one another in all the various situations of life together. So for example, when we, we pray for one another, that's how you love somebody else who also experiences the limitations and confinements of a human life under God. When we, pr- when we, when we forgive each other, that's how you love someone in a situation where you've wounded or hurt one another. These different one another's, they're, different, they're simply the different ways in which we practice the love that Jesus has for us. So one question to perhaps take with you as you, as you mull over Jesus' teaching and head back into your week this week is how, how could you, right now, in your own relationships, practice love that's shaped by Jesus? We default to we default to, to the reciprocity system ourselves. We want to love, and help, and care for people for whom it's easy for us to do so. People who will notice and, and thank us for it. People for whom it's advantageous for us to help them, be generous to them. Jesus says, what, what would it look like for you and your relationships to actually love others in a way that's shaped by the cross, to care about people who might not notice it, to Love people even if it's not reciprocated. To love in a way that's shaped by the cruciform, cosmic love of God. That's the kind of love that Jesus invites us to practice. Second, Jesus here commands us to love from his love as well. If you're like me, when you read these words, even if you've been a Christian for some time, You say to yourself, if you're honest, this sounds beautiful, but feels impossible. You know, I think think many of us, we'd read words like this and in our honest moments say, this looks beautiful on the page, and it feels painful, complicated, or impossible in real life. you're You're not alone in feeling that. I want you to listen to how a character in the Russian novelist 
uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's, uh, his, his novel, The Brother Karamazov, puts this predicament. There's a character, if you've read the novel, you know, named Father Zosima, who's this elderly, wise, holy man. And there's a particular moment in the story in which he's interacting with a well-to-do and well-intentioned woman who is telling him that she, she dreams of doing dramatic things to love people and care for people, give to people, and yet she finds it hard to carry out in real life. And, and he's, he's unfolding the way in which all of us share that predicament. I want you to listen to what he says. He says to this woman, I love mankind, but I am amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. In my dreams, he says, I often went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind and, as it may be, would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. And yet, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for even two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me, he said. But he goes on to say, love in dreams thirsts for immediate action, quickly performed, and with everyone watching. Indeed, it will go so far as even the giving of one's life, provided it does not take long, but is soon over as on stage and everyone is looking on and praising. Whereas active love is labor and perseverance. And for some people, perhaps, a whole science. I think Father Zosima is right. This kind of love on the page in our minds seems beautiful and heroic. In real life, it seems difficult, complicated. In reality, if we're being honest, it is, it's impossible for us to work up the moral sweat for what Jesus is telling us to do here. But luckily, that's not actually how the gospel works. In verse 34 of the scripture reading for today, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. Now, we, we translate that in, in a comparative way. Just as I love you, Jesus says, so love one another. But you could also translate that in a causative way. In other words, Jesus is also at the same time saying, from the love that I have for you, love one another. In other words, Jesus is not asking us as his disciples to work up inside of us a love that we don't already have at work in us, but to express the love of Jesus that is already beating and pulsing in the depths of who we are to the people that Jesus puts around us. The cosmic, crucified, selfless love of God given to you without condition or reserve that you have in the depths of who you are. Jesus says, if you're my follower and you have really experienced that love, you will find yourself beginning to live it out as well in the relationships that God puts you around, even with the people that annoy you, even with the people sometimes that hurt you. 
will fail you or betray you. You know, incidentally, this is why it doesn't work to just say that you appreciate Jesus as a wise, profound teacher, but, but don't buy all the Jesus saving us and that kind of stuff. If you think that Jesus is merely a wise teacher, you'll settle for, for warmed over niceness in life, but, but you won't really be transformed. You won't practice this kind of love. It's only when, it's only when you experience and comprehend God's infinite sacrificial love in the depths of who you are that you'll find yourself daring to do this kind of thing. Jesus says it's by this kind of love that all people will know you are my disciples. Not by your marketing schemes and your five-year plans. Not by your politicking and power grabbing. Jesus says it's, it's by the way that you love people that people will know you're the real deal. There's an early church father named Tertullian who, writing to someone who was an interested non-Christian about the explosion of the Christian movement in its early centuries, he says that it is our love for others that brands us in the face of our opponents. I think that's a helpful image. He he calls this kind of love, Jesus-shaped love, the brand of the Christian church. We have often, you don't need me to tell you, fallen short of that ideal. And yet, this is is to be our brand. Some of you have been around for a while, you know that over the last year, we did some updating to our website and aesthetics, the way things look around here and and such, and we used a great local design firm to help us do some of that. And as we were talking about our branding, one of the first questions that the woman who was working with some of our church leaders who were doing this stuff asked us is, what do you want your church to be known for? What do you want your church to be known for around here? The answer of Jesus is love. This is our brand. So friends, may you in your own life practice Jesus-shaped love from the love that Jesus has given you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.